And now we're in the first week of December, and I took my father to the airport in San Jose, California, which was just over the hill from Santa Cruz. And um, he had a wheelchair waiting for him to help him get to the gate. And uh, I was stunned. Um, I was an Army brat, and my father was an Airborne Ranger. The guy I remembered was the father of my youth, who was an infantry officer and a, a very... Um, a uh, strong person, sure. and uh, it was uh, it, it it set me back watching them wheel him away, uh, and uh, and I drove back to the office from about a half hour from the airport back over to Santa Cruz, and I opened up a phone book, and I looked up business brokers, and I think I called ABC Business Brokers. They said, well, we can be there in 40 minutes. And I'm kind of like going, whoa. Anyway, they ended up, we agreed to let them list the business. And they listed the business on uh, December 22nd. And by the 23rd, we had multiple offers on the business. Wow. And I remember calling my dad, and I didn't really want to tell him why we were considering this or what was the, the trigger, you know, I guess. But... uh I said, you know, maybe we should work to build the business up and give it more value, you know, add more value, because we really hadn't thought about it. And he said, well, why don't you take all that energy to building your new business? And I'm like, oh, yeah, you're the dad. That's right. <laughs> you know, smart. Um, and we did. Hey everyone, I'm Palmer Higgins and welcome to the Big Time Small Business Podcast. I interview owners, operators, and founders of the small businesses you see every day but don't hear enough about. We talk about the obstacles they have faced, the successes they have earned, and where their business is going to inspire and inform you in your own career. On this episode, I talk with Bob Garver, co-founder of Wicked Joe, a wholesale roasting company, and Bard Coffee, a retail coffee shop, both located in Maine. After falling in love with the connections coffee can foster as an army captain stationed in Turkey, Bob has spent the past quarter century sourcing, roasting, and brewing the best coffees he can find from around the world. From living on a boat with no kitchen or bathroom and plowing driveways on the side for supplemental income, Bob has remained focused on two things, relentlessly iterating on the perfect cup of coffee and positively impacting the entire coffee supply chain. Whether it is blind taste tests on every batch of coffee produced, or subsidizing farm expansion and community development and origin, Bob and his team continually strive to instill best practices throughout the organization. All right, Bob Garver, co-founder of Wicked Joe and Bard Coffee. Thanks a lot for being on the show, Big Time Small Business. It's a pleasure, Palmer. All right, um, so I got a lot of different things I wanna talk about. I've written down some notes, um, sort of wide-ranging, business-specific, entrepreneur specific, working with family specific. Uh, but I want to start uh, with a little bit of intro from you about the early days before Wicked Joe and Bard Coffee were a thing back out west uh, when you started your first coffee house and sort of what what sparked for you the desire to start your own business and to have it be a coffee house and a roastery. I think uh, I'd always had an entrepreneurial bent. As a kid, I had paper route that I expanded and split into multiple paper routes and 
and pass them on to my friends and things like that. I uh, uh, was in the service for a while, and when I got out, I felt like um, there was a moment. I was a single person. I didn't have any children, and I thought, this is my moment. And uh, on Memorial Day weekend of 1992, I got in my Pontiac convertible, 1966, and I drove back to California where I had been in language school previously and had made a lot of friends and come to really like the area. Um, I moved across the, or drove across the country with the idea that in, I had a moment and I could, and if I was able to start a business of almost any kind, um, uh, that I could, um, that this was, this was my chance. And uh, so I gave myself until Labor Day from Memorial Day to Labor Day. That is but a tight window. If I wasn't in business by Labor Day, I had to come back and grow up and get a job. Wow. A real job. And I started investigating what kind of what kind of business I could do. What 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 did I know how to do? One of the one of the gifts that I got from being a young leader in the army was that was that um, I was a lot of things that that were out of my comfort zone were thrown at me. And you learn how to learn, and you learn how to how to how to solve problems, and um, and you realize that you don't have to know everything. You have to know how to learn how to do everything. And um, so, in a, in a strange way, all of the additional duties and all of the the different jobs that I was forced to take as soon as I was actually proficient at the one I was doing, I would get moved into another job or thrown more responsibility at me, um, that, that made me, uh, uh, probably overly fearless about the challenges of, of learning something new. So it was more about, this is my time. I'm going to do this. Um, now what, what am I going to do? Yeah. And I, uh, I looked really was looking at doing a brew pub and uh, I've told this story before, but I had a business plan and I thought a lot about it. And, and as a young guy who liked to have a beer now and again, um, I thought that sounded great. Um, there was something, though, that was, that was holding me back from pulling the trigger on doing it. I found a location, uh, everything. Um, and uh, and uh, I, in the end, I, I, I tried to distill down later why I didn't do it. And I think that I didn't want to tell my grandmother I owned a bar. And uh, that was that, you know, the, the, but I liked the social aspect of that. And I, and I thought a lot about what, what, what is it that I like about this? And I started thinking about coffee. I'd had some really remarkable experiences around coffee. Um, I was stationed. I lived in Turkey uh, doing a, a, a job with NATO, and I'm a Turkish speaker, or was at that time. It's been a long time. But, Very uh, cool. I, uh, in that job, I had an opportunity um, to... Uh, interact uh, uh, both professionally and personally very closely with my with my counterparts that were in the Turkish army, and just had some remarkable experiences around coffee. Uh, I would go to meet with my counterparts, and we would sit down and and have coffee. And I think the first meeting I had. I was frustrated because I had more things planned and scheduled, and and I felt like uh, we're just sitting here having coffee. I, I'm supposed to be doing stuff. My my people are the people. 
my people are working mm-hmm. and I'm sitting here having coffee. And I really, really came to embrace the moments and and the connections that we made over coffee and and, and chai tea um, in, in Turkey uh, not only enriched me significantly personally, but they cha- they were game changers in terms of business and how I was able to get things done. For us is being able to participate in that ritual with our customers, sure. to be a part of that. We understand that people, whether they're brewing it at home or they're having it at work with their with their workmates or they're stopping by our coffee shop, no matter where, that's a kind of a meaningful ritual for people. They like to do it. It uh, it it's it's an important part of their day. It's a small part, but it's still something they look forward to, and and it means something to them. And we really like to be uh, uh, support uh, that being um, the best possible experience that it can be. Uh, however, we're involved. Sure. Now that that permeates uh, a lot of what you do, uh, touring your facility earlier and talking about. And I'll use the word ritual of cupping and going to origin and cupping with farmers and coming back and cupping with your employees on a quality control basis, but also then bring them into your internal uh, coffee house where you do a lot of R and D and testing. You know, I see that uh, I see that that ritual that that coming together of people sort of at, at every stage in the coffee journey from origin through your through your roastery to your coffee shops. And here now, here we are talking, having coffee together. Yeah. Comes yeah. full circle. It does. It's it's uh it's uh it, it's kind of uh, I don't I don't really like the term. People use it for alcohol social lubricant. It's <laughs> but it is it's kind of a social lubricant. It 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 connects people. People can talk over it and uh and they can remember their conversations the next day, uh, and, um, and which is also nice. Uh, but it's a uh, it it really is. It, it's I really love the way it it connects people. Sure, it, you know. So, so we, I actually want to go back to that uh, to the to when you open the doors for Wicked Joe and Bard. So I'm going to flash forward from the coffee house on the West Coast um, to moving back east and the genesis of Wicked Joe and Bard and it's sort of a two-part question of sort of what made you make that plunge um, and and how do you think and, and give a little bit of background for the listeners who maybe not, might not know about Wicked Joe and Bard, how do you think about those two companies? Because, you know, Bard is a retail coffee house here in Portland, Wicked Joe, a, a roastery business the way you do your own label plus private label roasting Um so sort of talk about the inception part and then how you, as the owner of both, uh, along with your wife, Carmen, how you two think about uh, those two businesses and how they sort of play off each other. Great. I mean, it's interesting because as you, as we were talking about the evolution and growth and change, um, I started uh, roasting coffee uh, on September 1st of uh, 1992 in Santa Cruz, California. But... Uh, in the early days, um, it was me and uh, a one-man show, like most entrepreneurs. And uh, I think uh, Carmen and I had met when we were in college. We didn't go to the same college, but we met in our college days, and um, we had kept in touch over the years. And I think always thought a lot of each other. Carmen joined me. She left her career on the East Coast, and uh, she joined me in my coffee business in. <clears throat> 
uh, you know, uh, uh, about five years in. And uh, at, at that time, I was asking a lot. I was living on a boat in the Santa Cruz uh, Harbor, mm-hmm. and uh, and she came out and 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 uh, was happy to let go of her, her things because we didn't have room for stuff other than us on this on this boat. And uh, the boat did not have a, a, a galley, which is a kitchen or a head. It was a racing sailboat. I had built a V-berth in the front uh, with, you know, out of plywood and wood um, and, uh, and, and a cut up uh, triangular foam mattress that I put up in front and that's where I slept. And, and there were fold down metal and canvas cots for the crew to, to get uh, catnaps on their trans Pacific races and things that this boat did. Um, and uh, so, no, it was not a, a, a cushy boat, but we loved it. And we had to use the, uh, and, and I, I remember to this day uh, that Carmen embraced that, uh, the, the idea of sacrifice for, uh, that we were able to invest in our business there. And, um, but because we, we, <clears throat> we lived a joyful, but a, but a relatively lean life. And, um, but she had to use, and as did I, the, the there were public, uh, shower and bathroom facilities in the, in the Harbor area that we, that we, that's where, what we, Yep. had to use. And, uh, so, uh, for, uh, two years or so, uh, that we live that way, but that's a common story, uh, that, and by the way, we felt pretty, we loved doing that. Um, so we didn't really feel like we were giving, it was a magical life down in the Harbor there as live aboards. Um, I had lived aboard a boat in Monterey when I was just starting the business at first, um, at where I pat, I rode out in off uh, Fisherman's Wharf in Monterey to a, a 32 foot antique de- uh, Danish teak sailboat. Uh, and, uh, and so that wasn't a new thing, but I had, uh, done everything from uh, lived in a tent next to one of my friend's houses where I could go in, in Carmel Valley, California, uh, to living in the back of my coffee shop. Um, you name it. I think that's a common story. Um, Carmen embraced that. And, uh, we live that way ever since she's, she's, uh, she came into the business and, uh, added, uh, skill sets that complemented mine. The, the the all the holes in in my game uh, she filled and she had some of her her own experiences that made this is a very good fit for her. Um, it was a very easy adjustment for us to work together. Um, you know, people will say I could never do that or or I hear I that can't a lot. Believe you do that? Yep. I, I would never. That's crazy. Yep. Um, I hear that a lot too. Uh, and, and I understand that. I would say that at this point, certainly Carmen and I, because of our different personalities and whatnot, that are very complementary. There is a, a sometimes um, there are, are certainly moments when we don't agree on the direction or the, the the decision that's in front of us, but we respect each other. We know that the other is that we're in the f- same foxhole together mm-hmm. that are, are not only our values, um, but our goals are, are aligned more closely that they couldn't be more aligned in terms of what we hope for our future. So to make a long story short, there were certainly, we were starting to feel with our daughters, we started to feel that we were a little more distant from our family than we wanted to be, but we never really thought about moving. Mm-hmm. Um, but those things were there. 
Um, but uh, my father had a my father would come out to visit, and he was getting older, and he would. We had started to have a little family tradition where he would come out for Thanksgiving and spend Thanksgiving with us and stay through the first week of December, help us pick our Christmas tree, and then he would go back east, and and the rest of my family uh, would have Christmas back there, and he would be with them for Christmas, and this was this was neat, and uh, and our daughter Frankie had just been born, and we in September of that year nineteen or uh, two thousand and uh, two. And uh, and now we're in the first week of December, and I took my father to the airport in San Jose, California, which was just over the hill from Santa Cruz, and um, he had a wheelchair waiting for him to help him get to the gate, and uh, I was stunned. Um, I was an Army brat, and my father was an Airborne Ranger. He was a very interesting man. He was a professor of geography at West Point. And then he, uh, you know, th different stage of his career. And then he went on to be the chief cartographer of National Geographic magazine. But the guy I remembered was the father of my youth, who was an infantry officer and a, and, uh, a very um, uh, strong person. Sure. And uh, it was, uh, it, it, it set me back watching them wheel him away. Uh, and, uh, and I drove back to the office from about a half hour from the airport back over to Santa Cruz. And I opened up a phone book and I looked up business brokers and I think I called ABC business brokers. So the owner of the brokerage got on the phone. He said, oh, you know, let me, you know, they started talking to me and they said, well, we'd really like to see your business. We'd like to visit you. And I said, well, you know, I was just curious, but, you know, when would you like to do that? And they said, well, we can be there in 40 minutes. And I'm kind of like going, whoa, this is again the first week of December. And uh, they came they came over and visited. And uh, this was all, though, I never had a conversation. We never had a conversation about leaving. So I showed up from the airport, and here, here's a business broker showing up. I felt like we still have an opportunity because they said, oh, it'll take, it'll take a year to sell a business. Don't worry. You don't have, you know, cause I'm sort of expressing those reservations. So anyway, they ended up, we agreed to let them list the business and they listed the business on uh, December 22nd. <laughs> Three days before Christmas. And by the 23rd, we had multiple offers on the business. Wow. And all of a sudden this has gone from theoretical, I wonder, to Okay. And I remember calling my dad and I didn't really want to tell him why we were considering this or what was the the trigger, you know, I guess. But uh, I said, you know, maybe we should work to build the business up and give it more value, you know, add more value because we really hadn't thought about it. I said, we're thinking about moving east. We'd like to be closer and all this stuff and um, close enough to drive. And, uh, and he said, look, I, I didn't know you were thinking about this, but if you are, you know, why don't you just, what are you going to do when you move east? I said, well, we'll do coffee. You know, we love doing coffee. I said, well, why don't you take all that energy to building your new business? And I'm like, oh, yeah, you're the dad. That's right. <laughs> you know, smart. Um, and we did. And um, so here we are going from thinking, okay, it's going to take a year. we got a lot of time to think about this to, um, okay, like, where do we want to move to? We didn't even know where we we're going to move, and um, 
we talked about it a bit, and Carmen said, you know, we had both come to Maine as kids uh, a, a few times uh, and really loved it here. And some of the things that we really loved about living in that part of California where the redwoods met the coast, um, uh, we felt like this was the place where we could be happiest. We felt like this was the best place for our daughters to grow up, but we understood that it was a more challenging place to start a small business. Sure. It was not a Especially business. Back then. It was not a business decision that made us choose Maine. It was a family decision. But we felt like that as long as we had a, a, a chance, we had a lot of experience and we knew how to work hard. And, um, and, uh, and there were some great coffee companies here at the time, but there, but it wasn't a, a, a flooded market or anything. We felt like we'd have an opportunity. Most of the coffee to this day is not uh, being produced by the, the the fine coffee roasters of Maine. Most of the coffee dr consumed in Maine is is produced by people outside of Maine still. So we felt like you know that there would that there was a that this would be a hard place to do business, but that we could have a, a good life here. That's when the work began again. That's when we, we started um, experiencing all the things that entrepreneurs experience. It's, it, it does take twice as long and it does cost twice as much as you think, no matter how much, no matter how much you say that when you're planning, it does, it, 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 it still does. And, um, and uh, and we had to make a lot of sacrifices uh, here again. The sacrifices didn't stop. We had a, a limited amount of money. We weren't able to pay ourselves for a long time in our business here, and um, we had to do without some things. And you know, um, when I got to Maine, I put a plow on the front of the truck, and I and I plowed for our for our neighborhood and other things. I had to do, you know, you do anything you can to to make. To, to make a go of it. Um, and uh, and, um, and uh, that's what we did all over again. We, we tried to, to be as, uh, as careful as we could with the way we spent money. Um, at the same time, really investing heavily in the things that we believed in. Best practices mm -hmm. is something we talk about. Um, best practices, which are not the least expensive always. So, you know, we've always sort of really picked where we were going to spend enough or too much, um, but but also trying to be very careful on the personal side. Yeah. So, um, so how, how much how much of the vision when you started, you came back east and you started Wicked Joe, um, how much of that vision was sketched out before and how much of it has evolved over time, right? So when I, when I go through the tour of Wicked Joe, which we did recently, uh, what stands out to me is an intense conviction on uh, sustainability, best practices, quality, uh, and a relentless pursuit of, of that consistent quality. Um, and, and saying, and one of the one of the quotes you said to me is, "If it's got a Wicked Joe label on it, it's certified organic, just hands down." Um, so, how much of that was was there from the beginning, and how much of that grew and evolved over time? I would say that growing up and learning coffee in Santa Cruz, uh, that was just part of our DNA when we came here. So we knew what kind of business we wanted to build. I mean, great question. We knew that we wanted to build a mission-based business. We knew that we wanted to sell organic coffees. We knew that we wanted to, to, to sell coffees that were best for the environment, 
that were sourced with uh, consideration of the quality of life and and ensuring that our partners were successful, our growers, the farm, the people that we source our coffees from, mm-hmm. and uh, and and that there was a a safety net for them, which is why fair trade is so important to us. But we had done. I had had a coffee shop in Santa Cruz, and um, and I, I there was a part of me that. Uh, uh, that that missed that that missed the direct connection that you get from that with with customers whereas when you're wholesaling you're selling to other people who then get the pleasure of serving that to your to your neighbors and friends but you don't get that opportunity that hospitality moment that 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 direct participation in that ritual that I talked about before mm-hmm. and also for us to utilize what we consider best practices in the brewing of it we then uh uh, established Bard Coffee um, <clears throat> with the idea that this would be an opportunity for us to, to again, uh, have that piece that we didn't have here, uh, where we got to where we got to interact directly with customers and 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 share the experience with them. They're different businesses. Um, Wicked Joe is a uh, wholesale business. We sell organic coffees and mostly fair trade coffees, and we have uh, distribution. Uh, throughout the United States. We're in 50 states uh, and uh, and 18 distribution centers throughout the country. And um, and 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 we're selling a fair amount of of organic and fair trade certified coffees uh, all around the country. And we're very proud of that because there's tremendous impact that we can have there. But Bard is a place where in order to do that, we have to, you know, we're, we're, we're purchasing large, lots of high-quality coffee. But at Bard, we're able to, to go even deeper, and we're selling very, very small lots of extremely uh, uh, high-quality uh, coffee yeah. uh, that, um, that we're able to uh, give the kind of respect for and treatment for sure yeah so i want to dive deeper into that because uh, there's definitely a huge impact and you are on both sides wicked joe and bard mission driven um yes. but it's damn good coffee uh and it's and i would classify it as quality by intent um and you talk about the ritual and the art of coffee but you spend five minutes in your roastery at wicked joe uh in the cupping room and the level of the lengths that you go to to ensure that your quality and is your is consistent mm-hmm. and your blends are consistent and the the upper echelon of coffees that you're bringing through to Bard are that top notch is extraordinary. So can you talk a bit about your quality control processes and and really which brings in sort of the science to the art of quality consistency that through end to end from green coffee to brewing. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, This is something that's universal. We approach it through coffee, but any business has to be focused on quality. And, um, you know, whether if you're a service, it doesn't matter what kind of industry you're in. You, you, you want to strive to be the best. And we, uh, we do, we are always questing. To, uh, and 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 striving for excellence, we will begin at origin cupping with our producers, and that's generally me doing that at origin. Those cuppings are always blind. We don't know what coffee, whose coffee we're cupping 
blind. And so we're choosing the coffees that are the highest quality without regard to who's making them or any of the other things. Um, once we've uh, evaluated the, the, that we're selecting the best coffees or that the choices, these are the best choices, we'll go out and meet with the people that are producing those coffees and get a sense of, of who they are. Are their values aligned with ours? Um, it, it, you know, who, who do, how do they behave in their communities? Um, are, are the, the claims that they make about how they, how they, uh, are producing their coffee claims that we'll share with our customers. We need to know that they're true. So we want to go visit them and we'll do that when we're beginning or establishing a relationship. It always begins with which coffee tastes best. And then we'll move from there to get to know people. And then we'll make a decision. Do we want to do we want to 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 um, source coffees from this producer? We'll make a, a very uh, deliberate and uh, intentional decision around who we source from, and then in the years that follow, in many cases we're going back now for we've been going for over a decade, baby. We we've begun relationships with Cup of Excellence Champions. That is a national champion for quality within a country. And of at, which there are how many in a given year? One in in each country. There's only one champion. For instance, we uh, have a relationship with a farmer, Bertilio Reyes, in uh, in uh, he's from El Cielito in uh, Santa Barbara, uh, Honduras, and uh, he was the Cup of Excellence Championship in 2009. There, we've built. Uh, we began purchasing his coffee because it was the best. And we've worked with him uh, in the years in between on numerous collaborations. And we were the first. That community now has uh, buyers from all over the world and that are buying microlot coffees from this particular area and through the mill, Beneficio San Vicente, where these coffees come from. We were the first handshake, Bertilio and I, in that community. And we were the first exclusive relationship that was happening in that community. Since then, many others have followed, but um, that that relationship has grown to the place where we've collaborated on uh, on varieties, on on drying, and and we've made contributions above and beyond the very high price that we pay for the coffee. Um, but uh, you know, and now we're buying from Bertilio's nephew, and we've. We've invested in purchasing more, you know, where we've loaned money uh, to, so that Bertilio could purchase uh, more land at the highest elevations where his farm are at from adjacent uh, properties so that, th that their family can benefit by being able to produce more and whatnot. Sure. Um, but, no, but, but none of that but collaboration. We get, but we get better coffee. Right. But that's no, why, that's the, that's the point. Sure. But it's easy to say better coffee. Um, and I think everyone has a perception of what that is. It tastes better, right? Tastes but, better. Sure. Um, but there are intricacies when you get into good tasting coffee that is very hard to define, very hard to quantify. And, and before we press the record button, when I was walking through Wicked Joe, the conversation about the marriage of the relationships, the trust, that, that personal element matched up with the scientific method behind what is good coffee. And, you know, we talk about cupping at origin, but then bringing it back, you guys cup every single bag, every single batch of coffee that goes through Wicked Joe's. That's every 150 pounds of coffee you guys are cupping to make sure that it's what it's supposed to be. And 
it, the roast comes out the way it's supposed to be, depending on the time of day, depending on the temperature of the roaster, uh, at a level uh, that I'm gonna I'm gonna equate to a sort of a master sommelier level when you talk about Q grader status, which is a level of coffee tasting that is the the pinnacle of coffee tasting. And there are only a couple hundred in the U.S., and you have two of them. Uh, so you know the the quality component of it is not by accident. We are. We're very proud. Uh, we have two certified Q graders who are calibrated with cuppers all over the world in our facility um, uh, uh, that are cupping. The maximum batch size on our largest roasters um, is 150 pounds, but many of our batches are much, much smaller than that. And every batch of coffee that we roast is cupped by a Q grader. Blindly. Uh, blindly before it leaves the facility. Um, but we start cupping coffees, and that is a constant throughout the process. And um, we're, we begin cupping at origin when we're making a selection. And then when we visit every year, I'm cupping the coffees to see how they are relative to last year. It's a coffee that we are pretty sure we're buying because we bought it for a long time, and it's always awesome. But it's an agricultural product, and it changes, and there's difference in nuance. Before it ships, we'll get a a uh, sample, a pre-ship sample of those coffees that we will sample, roast, and evaluate to make sure it's 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 what we cupped when we were there. And then uh, once the coffee arrives, we will uh, start bringing in that coffee into our roastery, and we'll start sample roasting it to develop our the profile that we're going to roast it with. And so there's a lot of coffee that uh, cupping that happens then. And once we've developed a profile on the coffee that's when it goes into production. And once it's in production, every single roast is cupped in order to determine and, and ensure that it is staying right in the lane that we've told our customers, if you buy this coffee, it's going to taste like this. So yes, we, we uh, invest. And then after all of that, yeah. you go and you brew it, which is a different process than cupping, brewed slightly differently to make sure that at the end customer, depending on how they brew it, it's going to stay in that profile too. We do. And um, what happens is uh, once once the coffee is developed on the cupping table, we're tasting it, we'll take it then into our, our, our uh, training and experimentation room. In the cupping room, everything's always the same. It's really a lab. In the, in the training and experimentation room, that's where we get to get to kind of really play with the coffee. And in particular, in those moments, we're going to brew it exactly how we believe our end customers are going to brew it. And we're going to make sure that it that what we've developed based on our cupping table, that if it needs even further tweaking, we're going to do it based on how it tastes as a brewed coffee or brewed as an espresso, if that's what we're working on. Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, so... Uh, so yes, we will then go back and tweak. And the important thing is that every cupping, we have software, we're fairly fairly sophisticated in the way we approach our, our quality control. And so at every, uh, uh, every cupping, our QC uh, director, um, Carrie Goodick, um, Carrie, who's a Q grader, will input her results from every single cupping and whether the coffee's in its lane. And if there's even a slight variance, we can make tweaks to the roast. 
So that goes into the software that we use on the roasters, the same software we're keeping notes and comparing. And so we're always making small, small tweaks to our roast so the coffee never never veers out of the profile. Sure. And um, and uh, when you talk about the lab, I mean, so there's, there's the Q grader, there's the cupping, there's the profile, there's the human element, uh, albeit very sophisticated palette on the human element with the Q grader. Um, but you also have some pretty sophisticated equipment to monitor the beans scientifically as well. Uh, can you talk about some of the, some of that equipment you have in the lab and how that also impacts uh, the roasting process? Sure, we've got a lot of lab equipment. Some that is 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 more maybe common that that smaller roasters have, and we're a small. Look, we're we're very proud of what we're doing, but we're a small main business. Mm-hmm. We use moisture meters to measure the the moisture in the green coffee because uh, if the moisture changes because you know uh, or, or there's a change because that coffee has been resting longer uh, as green coffee, that we'll make adjustments because it'll roast differently. Um, we have particle size analyzers to evaluate that our grinders are operating properly if we're grinding coffee for people and um, that we may need to make an adjustment to the grinders because as grinders, you know, burrs change and they may, they, they may uh vibrate uh, out of adjustment or something. So we're always looking at those things. We have oxygen headspace analyzer, which is a piece of equipment that most coffee companies don't have, but we nitrogen flush all of our bags that we do for retail. And we want to make sure that the nitrogen flushing is happening properly. And the only way to do that is to measure how much oxygen is in the bag. Uh, And so we have that equipment. We We don't send our stuff out to a lab to evaluate that. We do it regularly in our place to make sure that everything's always working properly. We don't want to find out after there's a problem and somebody's telling us. So um, we have, we use uh, handheld refractometers to measure TDS in our brewed coffee. Um, we use uh, near infrared photospectrometers uh, to measure the degree of roast. Um, to make sure that our roasts are staying in the same profile. That's really looking at the color, where you grind it, where you have a whole bean color and a ground color uh, on the coffees. And you can see exactly whether it'll measure exactly is it the same darkness or lightness. But in the end, all of those things can say that the coffee's good. But the point is, it's still all about cupping. That stuff helps us. It helps to identify if there's an issue and where we need to be. Mm-hmm. But only the cupping, the cupping is always the final arbiter. Everything has to be cupped. And so it doesn't really matter whether the, 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 our Agtron uh, photospectrometer uh, is telling us whether that coffee is roasted exactly the same way. Um, it may not have gotten there the same way. You sure. know? Sure. And, and we've got... Uh, the the software on our compute on our on our uh, roasters that we can see if there's any tweak in how that coffee roasted we can see the curve the roast curve and uh, and so but we cup so for all of that and it's very valuable and it helps us and it adds layers that we invest in quality that's all invest in quality and consistency um, but it's about people and tasting and cupping and using that equipment properly. When we talk about quality, you can talk about cup score, uh, high cup scores and things like that, but but if you want to distill it down, does it taste good? 
you know, is this taste really great? Uh, and, and, and does it taste the way our customers? Are we, are we um, delivering on the promise we've made to them? And so we want to make sure that we deliver on that promise for people that go out of their way to either find it at a grocery store or to purchase it online, that every time they buy our coffee, um, it's, going to be, um, it's going to be the same, same sure. quality uh, and, and to taste the same. Sure. Um, we aren't perfect. We can't be perfect. But I think something we talk about at Bard or at Wicked Joe, we're humans. Humans aren't. We're just not made to be perfect, but, and we will make mistakes, but we will never make mistakes or we won't accept making mistakes because we didn't try hard enough because we didn't care enough about quality. So that's like uh, the goal. The goal is to, to, to never make mistakes because we didn't do our best and try hard and that we didn't use best practices along the way. And all of the things that I just described were back to best practices. What's best practice for making sure that our coffee, we're, 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 we're making sure that we do everything we possibly can to make sure our coffee is always top notch. Sure. So you mentioned that you and Carmen, while different uh, personalities have a similar vision for Wicked Joe and for Bard. So what, what is that? So what does the future and what does the future have in store? What is the ideal, what is the ideal future for you, for Wicked Joe, for your people look like? We don't want to be a big company. We want to be a great company. We want to be, we just want to be great. Uh, and we want to be a company that our children are proud of us for, for creating and building and that our community is proud that we're part of, that our staff members are proud to be a part of. We've, we're a, I don't know that we ever expected that we would be doing a lot of things we're doing, but, but you know, when you work hard and, on the things we've talked about, on quality and all those things, opportunities come to you that you didn't necessarily anticipate. And we say, okay, do we want to do this? Is this going to make us better? Is this going to make us happier? How is this going to benefit our stakeholders? Is this going to make our, uh, our you know, uh, our, is this going to benefit our farmers? Is this going to benefit our, uh, our, our staff members? And if we can't say yes to those things, we're not going to do it. So there's a lot of opportunity. Um, there are a lot of opportunities out there that we say no to because we don't feel like it's really in our lane. Or we're learning that um, that as we grow because of the model, because of the way we're built, the more coffee we grow, the more money goes into the communities. So, for instance, with fair trade, people don't know this, but not only – Right now, fair trade farmers are earning significantly more than non-fair trade farmers, generally speaking. Can you quantify um, that for the listeners? Unless they are producing micro-lot coffees or coffees that are outside of the normal purchasing uh, methodology, which generally has a sea market, you know, the 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 sea market is the coffee market, uh, which is a, a you know fee coffee futures market, and ordinarily coffees are purchased based on where the 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 sea market is, with a differential that it can include quality and all the, that will include quality and all those things. So coffee is always purchased based on cup score and and quality and all those things are factored in, but the baseline is way below where fair trade. Um, 
where the fair trade baseline is significantly higher than where the market is now. So when we visit our farmers, they're extremely grateful for that because the safety net that that's intended to provide and to ensure that they can earn a living wage no matter what, um, uh, that that is there for them. Now, when the sea market rises and it hits the fair trade minimum price that is right now 40 to 50 cents higher for conventional coffee. Now, when you're talking about organic coffee, you're talking about another uh, significant leap mm -hmm. for the minimum yep. that you can pay. And on top of that, you're paying for quality and whatnot and community premiums. There's an additional... Um, there's an additional uh, 20 cents per pound that goes to the communities that we purchase on top of what the farmers are paid. So last year alone, uh, the the, the uh, purchases that Wicked Joe made uh, resulted in over $200,000 in community premiums going to our partner communities. That they would get, the members of the, of the cooperatives will get together and vote on how they want to spend that money to benefit their community. It's not the most profitable model. To, to build in all the giving and support and and investment in quality, all the things that we do cost money that we don't recoup it all. Um, we certainly don't, we, it's certainly much more costly on a transactional basis, but we're not a transactional company. We're in it for the long haul with our partners and it makes us better. So the more that we can sell, the more we can purchase. And the more of those other family members that we now know by face because we visit, the more of them can then get into the, to, into the association or the cooperative, and they can get higher prices. So we see that there's a direct impact. Now, it's not just a theoretical idea that, that more people will benefit. We know the people. We know, uh, we, we, we know specific people like... Um, Antonio Domingo Cota's son in Guatemala, one of our one of our uh, a fair trade organic farmers that has micro lot quality coffee that we that we segregate from all the other coffees in that association because we work closely with that association. His son wants to join our join the association because he can get a much higher price for his coffee, and he's really really wanting us to intercede and to get him moved up the line to get into the association. So we know, we know that that's a face that if we can buy more coffee, that, 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 that young person can, can, can have his family benefited by that. So we're excited for that opportunity. And that makes us um, eager to, to see what the possibilities are and to explore some of the things like tea that, that I kind of let go of in the past, but I've been working on for quite a while now uh, because we feel like, wow, there's real opportunity to add value like we do with the model that we do in the communities that we're going to purchase tea from. Um, and uh, so we've begun sourcing teas. You can taste them at Bard Coffee now, uh, many of the teas that we're sourcing. And, uh, but there's an opportunity for our people now. That, that 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 assuming that we're successful in that endeavor and in building that that business that there's going to be an opportunity for for people within our organization to now have a new challenge and a new opportunity a new place to learn and a new place to grow and thrive so it is uh it's uh so the answer is i guess that every step of the way we're still saying, is this going to make us better? Or is this, are we still going to be proud of our company? Uh, but now the calculus includes, are we, uh, you know, is, is, 
can, 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 will this add more impact? So I want to close up the interview with a couple questions that I ask everybody. Um, I purposely didn't, didn't give you a heads up here so I, so I can get the unvarnished answer. Um, and the first question is, imagine uh, you were able to press a magic pause button of life for four months. You didn't have to do anything related to day-to-day of Wicked Joe or Bard, but you had to allocate that time to further Wicked Joe and or Bard. How would you allocate that time? I feel like I kind of get to do that now. Uh, probably one of the benefits of having the staff that we now have. In the old days when we started the business, I roasted every pound of coffee that we sold probably for over a decade. Even when we moved here to Maine, it was me on the roaster initially. And I bagged most of it. And uh, we were stuck in sort of always in the weeds, it felt like, you know, not able to really look long-term and strategically at our business because we were so busy. And this is something that anybody who's starting a business probably feels a lot, that you're just so busy um, that you can't see the forest through the trees thing. And we did that a lot. We've got incredibly talented people doing our day-to-day, and it's not just Carmen and I having to do that anymore. That makes our business better because we get to focus on doing those things. So uh, that that that's my daily life, and that's probably why I like it so much. I want everybody around me to be better at what they're doing than I am because I always had to be a jack of all trades, as you are in your business. Well, I feel that way now. I mean, I'm like surrounded by people that are smarter than me. They're really good. And um, that enables me to do probably that kind of stuff, which is what I want to do, by the way, is to think about how, what are the next steps? How are we going to make, how, how are we going to be better? That's why we're starting to source our own teas. I started that process years ago. I've done certifications on tea and evaluating tea and understanding tea. I've traveled to origin and we're sourcing teas from tea gardens and, uh, and tea factories that process the teas. And, 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 uh, and, and uh, so we've begun to, to, to apply the model that we've, that has been so successful for us with coffee and so joyful to sourcing teas. That's a good example. I've really been able to do that. I've set up, you've been there. I've set up like a tea room that is my tea sanctuary where we've got everything. It's just like a total uh, mad scientist experimentation room and tasting and cupping and quality control room just for tea. No coffee allowed in. That's an example of where I've been able to go and explore and invest my time and energy into uh, areas that I think can be really, really beneficial to all of our stakeholders, most specifically our own staff and the people in the building that work with me, either at Wicked Joe or Bard Coffee. Yeah, that's a great answer and unique one for for the podcast. All right, last one here, similar in terms of, of allocating a resource. This one's going to be monetary though. Um, imagine a million dollars just dropped on your doorstep, but the stipulation was you had to reinvest it back into Wicked Joe or Bard. Uh, or both, how would you allocate that money? I think that I would probably split it up into uh, some different categories. Probably uh, uh, a chunk of that would go towards just doing fun stuff with our staff. You know, just just 
making life joyful by creating opportunities for experience uh, stuff. We do a staff appreciation day where we like to go out and do something fun and that kind of thing. Go take, go out on a boat together, a schooner or whatever, you know, we work hard. We always said we wanted to be a work hard, play hard company. Um, I would, I would, I would dedicate some of that to playing harder. Um, because I think that it should, it's gotta be fun. We want it to be fun, and it doesn't always feel that way because we're always – because we feel a responsibility to our customers, and and more and more customers are coming on. And we we you know we want to fulfill their orders uh, and get the quality right. And so everybody, it feels like we're always really, really trying hard, and we're not we're not stopping to to have a beer as often as possible. Um, that kind of thing and, and get our, get our hands dirty outside or something. I would do, I would want to do more of that. I would rent a plane and take everybody to visit our producers. And you know what I mean? Sure. And, and, and give them that because man, when you feel that you want to do better because you understand and they're people to you that you know them now, not from a picture in our, on our wall in our roastery, um, but you know them personally. And now all of a sudden you care more about quality. You care more about that. We talk a lot about our responsibility in that supply chain at the end when we roast or we serve coffee to our, to our staff members because we see all the work and we are, feel like we're sort of running the, the last leg of a, of a marathon relay and we've gotten past the baton and, and if we don't do our job, then we're not respecting the work of all those people that went before us. We're not understanding that. And so I would take all of our staff as often as possible to origin, maybe even some of our customers, and 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 treat them to that and share that with them so that they could see that and understand that walking their land and hearing their stories about how they that, that, that farm has been in their family for generations and how without the mechanism of, of fair trade and the access to markets that they, they have, they, they wouldn't exist, that they wouldn't be able to farm those lands. And that, that way of life would go away. To hear that directly not hearing it from me or from some literature that's put out to hear people say, please, I want to, I want to get, uh, I want to be a member of the association, but, but they can't, but they don't have room because they don't, they, you know, they're going to sell X number of containers this year. If mm -hmm. they could sell X plus two, that's a lot of farmers. So are people hearing that? That's a very long answer. Cause, cause I, I get excited about that kind of stuff. I, that, I can tell. I would, I would include that. So playing, but also getting our people down there because you can't unsee that stuff. Awesome. It changes you. Awesome. Well, Bob, thanks a lot for the time on the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Palmer. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Big Time Small Business Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review and share the show with a friend. To access show notes and subscribe to our distribution list, be sure to visit us at chenmarkcapital.com slash podcast. That's Chenmark, C-H-E-N-M-A-R-K, capital.com slash podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Chen Holdco, C-H-E-N Holdco. Last but not least, we'd love to hear from you, so please drop us a line at podcast at chenmarkcapital.com. Thanks a lot.